Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC Africa correspondent, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, who leads the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from Kenya. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast seeks to stimulate ideas among those who, like us, share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Very good to chat to you from the same continent. Yeah, nice to be on the same continent uh, for a change. Well, what a few weeks it's been since we last spoke. You've been travelling around Kenya. I'm just back from Uganda. And Nigeria's presidential election has been plagued by violence and allegations of mass vote rigging. And it's now being disputed in the courts. Yes. And in your part of the world, we've seen South African businesses plunged into despair as the financial services sector is hit by the so-called grey listing. This just adds to business woes caused by a collapsing electricity provider and more of that a bit later. Yeah, and a good quick lesson on what grey listing actually is a bit later. Uh, Also a little later, we'll focus on the Russia-Africa relationship. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has made two visits to the continent in the span of six months. And in the past few weeks, the South African military has been busy playing war games in the Indian Ocean with its Russian and Chinese counterparts, a year on from the war in Ukraine. We'll be hearing from Russian affairs analyst Samantha de Benedin. Here's a sneak preview of what she has to say. I think that the thrust for Russia here is really political. It wants to, to, to break... Western dominance in the world, both economic and political. And Africa is a continent to fight over. Looking forward to hearing more on that one. But first, let's have a look at some of the stories since our last podcast. says the era of French interference in Africa was over. The president was on a four-nation tour of the continent to renew frayed ties. Ugandan lawmakers on Thursday introduced legislation to parliament that proposes tough new penalties for same-sex relations in a country where homosexuality is already illegal, defying criticism from human rights groups. At least 15 people have been killed in Malawi and Mozambique A cyclone Freddy battered the region for the second time in a month. It's been a rather long-awaited announcement, not only for weeks, but for today as well. President Cyril Ramaphosa finally making his announcement of a cabinet reshuffle with uh, interesting results. Al-Khalib Qasim has been appointed interim CEO of ESCOM. Two days ago, the board released Andre Dereta with immediate effects. Yes, South Africa's embattled power utility, ESCOM, has continued to dominate the headlines. Recently, the US and Australia issued warnings which were picked up by most of the world's media, warning that power outages have the potential to increase crime and ongoing protests have the potential to cause civil unrest. The language may have been something that you and I weren't particularly impressed with, Tara, but I think the message was clear. All this, of course, in response to President Ramaphosa's declaration of a national state of disaster. It's a legal term, but what it does is to give the government extra powers to try to tackle the energy crisis. All that happening just weeks after the ESCOM CEO resigned after death threats and his revelations that the government pressured him to tolerate corruption at the power utility. 
Indeed, and what's new in the most recent revelations from ESCOM is the extent of that corruption mm. and the sabotage and collusion in corruption. What's more is there is the deep involvement of the province of Mpumalanga in this uh, sabotage and collusion. And Mpumalanga is the home turf, almost fiefdom of David Mabuza, the outgoing deputy president. In fact, uh, Karen, investigators have shown that the corruption reaches into the heart of the ANC and into the presidency. It's another make or break moment for Cyril Ramaphosa because the state of, a, state of disaster gives him more powers to act. But the question is, will he? Mm -hmm. And now, Karen, if we were looking at it from a business point of view, the risk that the electricity generator and distributor is collapsing is potentially catastrophic for business. What it means is that businesses will face a Nigeria-like situation where major industry has to introduce hugely costly diesel fuel generators. Yeah. And as you know, diesel is ever more expensive. Mm. And the warnings that you mentioned earlier, Karen, from the US and Australia will have an, a, another negative impact on South Africa's economy, a negative impact on tourism, which now, as you know, accounts for about 10% of GDP. Yeah. I mean, it's worthwhile making a comparison here. As you know, I've been traveling around Kenya and Kenya shows the world what can be done in 15 years. Today, 90% of its electricity needs are from renewable energy sources. And that transition has also had the added benefit of increasing the number of people who have access to electricity. And it's interesting because it is a conversation that comes up all the time between Kenya and South Africa. Mm. You know, you talk to taxi drivers, you talk to people on the street. They know what's going on here. Yeah. And I guess it's a, it's a, it's a cause of a degree of shame and, and, and possibly surprise. Yes. I mean, surprise for Kenyans who can't believe that the great power that South Africa is um, has such extensive power outages where Kenya has none. Yeah. Well, look, another story since we last spoke, uh, again, South Africa focused, I'm afraid, is the grey listing. The country's been grey listed by the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. It's an intergovernmental organisation to develop global policy against money laundering and financial terrorism, as you know, Tara. Now, South Africa is only the third G20 country to have been grey listed. And it's an issue because South Africa up until now has had a pretty good reputation when it comes to banking compliance. So what does it mean for business, Tara? Well, uh, the grey listing means that the task force has found deficiencies in South Africa's anti-money laundering and terrorism financing measures. It serves as a warning and indicates that the country is working with the organisation, with the task force to resolve these. And this indeed was confirmed by Cyril Ramaphosa recently. Yeah, but isn't grey listing, it's not quite as disastrous as blacklisting, is it? South Africa was grey listed, according to the country's finance minister, because of its failure to adequately investigate and prosecute money laundering and terror financing. So, um, the implication is the systems are there, but they weren't being properly used. Presumably, it'll have a discouraging effect on investors. There is nothing positive about being grey listed, even if it is a work in progress. There are certain financial institutions out there that compel their fund managers to disinvest from countries with any kind of listing. Mm. And being grey listed for any length of time will also impede the country's ability to access international financial markets. It also brings increased scrutiny from financial institutions and regulators, and that 
for business just usually means more cost. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, another story, uh, Karen, has, has to be Nigeria's election. You know, Bola Tinubu's controversial win and what happens next. Yeah, as we record this, the results are being battled out in the courts after allegations of irregularities, including results being declared from polling stations where no polling actually took place. We know that credible elections are something people across Africa yearn for. We speak to organisations like Afrobarometer that absolutely underscore that. But let us assume for now, Tara, the court upholds the results in Bola Tanubu's favour. What next? The real question is, how will the new president be judged? The very first thing is on the speed mm. of his appointments. If you remember, Mohamedou Buhari, the outgoing president, took around six months before appointing yes. his first cabinet. The, then the most important issue is the economy and then security. Um, Tinubu has already presented a credible cabinet team around Western capitals in the run-up to these elections. But the question is, will these people actually be appointed? And then the economy is in a rolling crisis thanks to the outgoing administration. Nigeria has no money. 90% of government revenue, which is mainly from oil earnings, goes on debt servicing. Mm. And then there are exchange control regulations that are in place that are crippling business and the economy as a whole and forcing businesses to lobby for foreign exchange, which in previous administrations was freely available. It's now in really short supply. Uh, and the IMF has repeatedly called on the government to scrap these exchange controls. It's essential for Nigeria to scrap exchange controls if it wants to unlock international and indeed domestic investment. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned security, Tyra. That is obviously a big priority for the new president. Nigerians are played by the insurgency group Boko Haram in the northeast. Banditry persists everywhere. Nigeria's seen a spike in kidnappings. Piracy in the Gulf of Guinea, it's the world's most dangerous hotspot for this kind of maritime crime. And also massive oil bunkering, that's basically siphoning off oil onto ships, or to put it quite plainly, theft, which accounts for about 10% of Nigeria's oil production. So the next president really has quite a lot on his plate. He certainly does. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. In the past few months, one cannot fail to have noticed the flurry of activity from Moscow seeking to deepen ties with friends in Africa. It's not simply about winning support on the continent in Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine or cementing promises made by Russia in 2019 to double trade with Africa within five years. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has made two visits to Africa in the past six months. And Russia Today, the Russian television network, has been actively recruiting new journalists as Russian influence grows on the continent. All really interesting food for thought. Our guest today is the Russia expert Samantha DeBenden. She's an associate fellow of Chatham House and a political commentator on Russian and Ukrainian affairs. Samantha, there's so much to talk to you about. And as journalists, we're really, really keen to hear about um, the thinking behind uh, Russia wanting to set up Russia Today here in South Africa. It attempted to do it in Kenya, um, but instead has, has set up a South African base. But before we go into that, the war in Ukraine, obviously the effects being felt very, very 
uh, heavily globally, but here in Africa, where many countries rely on wheat imports from that part of the world, you know, what can you give us a sense of the the future trajectory of that war and and, and the effect that it's going to have in this part of the world? Well, I think unfortunately the war is going to go on at least for the whole of twenty twenty three. And, and it could drag on longer. In fact, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that at the Defence Minister's Summit in February in Brussels, when he actually said this war could go on for years and that NATO has to be prepared for the long haul. And that this is where I think that the, the information narrative is going to be vitally important if, if the West, if, 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 if the northern sort of West, Northwestern Hemisphere isn't going to lose the battle for hearts and minds in Africa. Because Russia is framing the wheat crisis and the consequential famines in parts of mm. Africa as being because of Western sanctions and because of Western support for Ukraine. And this is absolutely, completely false. First of all, there are no Western sanctions on agricultural products, even Russian agricultural products. The reason why wheat is not getting to consumers in Africa is because the Black Sea has now become a war zone. Mm -hmm. The Black Sea is, is the sea that goes from the southern coast of Ukraine and Russia basically into Turkey or into the Mediterranean and then into the rest of, of the world. And the Black Sea is now heavily mined. It is being patrolled by warships, mainly Russian warships. It is unsafe to navigate. And in the very beginning of the war, in between February and May, June 2022, shipments out of, out of Russia and Ukraine were completely blocked because of the war. Then there was a deal brokered with Turkey, uh, really helped broker this deal for, to allow ships to navigate on the Black Sea with, with assurances from Russia and Ukrainian side that they, these ships would not be attacked. But um, this is going to be an ongoing problem. And the agreement with Turkey has to be renewed every few months. And depending on the mood in Moscow, it may or may not be renewed because Moscow knows that it can use wheat and other agricultural products as a bargaining chip. What people need to understand is that we have in the Putin's regime in Russia, somebody who's prepared to use energy, food, and ultimately nuclear weapons to blackmail the world into letting it do what it wants to do. If the West accepts this, it is signing its own death warrant and a very difficult time for the African continent. What, what, what Russia is doing is presenting itself as, as a the sort of the, the saviour of the continent who's going to come and help the continent forget the, the evils of colonisation. And what a lot of countries don't realise is that however bad colonisation from Europe may have been, from Russia it will be a lot worse in terms of respects for human rights, in terms of fostering democracy, in terms of fostering good corporate governments, rule of law, anti-corruption. They would be signing, signing away their continent and individual countries will be signing away their resources to a regime that will make all the problems the continent is facing even worse. 
We mentioned in the introduction we've seen Sergei Lavrov make two visits to Africa in the past six months. We've seen the US respond with high-profile visits by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and US Treasury Secretary Yellen just in the past few weeks. And and Africa is again being revived as a, a, um, a sphere of geopolitical influence. To what extent do you get the impression that Many countries in this part of the world know what you say, know that effectively there are dangers with holding hands with Russia, but are effectively trying to play the two sides off against each other and get what they can out of the relationship whilst constraining the excesses uh, of Russia. I I think somewhere like, like South Africa or like Kenya would say, look, we know some of the concerns about the demographic deficits in Russia. Yet there are certain things that we like about doing business with Russia. We want to at least hear what they're able to offer us as a really important instrument of strategic balancing. Do you think that's correct? Or do you think there's a certain naivety in this part of the world? Um, I think it's probably a mix of both. I think in terms of, of the relationship, what Russia is is putting forward in its relationship with Africa now is, is more political ties to begin with. It's saying, look, we represent a different world order in which you will have an equal voice at the table of, of, of great nations. And this is, I think, particularly the case of South Africa, mm-hmm. which is a, a priority target for Russia at the moment because of its economic weight in the African continent and its political weight as well. And also it's it's traditionally closer ties to, to, to countries in the West, particularly the, the sort of the Anglo-Saxon world. Russia sees this as an opportunity to not only further its own interests. I mean, it needs export markets for its arms, although it's it's got its hands pretty full with its own um, own war in terms of, of, of its arms. And so the ex- we can get on to the export markets in a minute. Mm. But also as, as importers of its oil and, and, and gas and and certain uh, heavy industrial uh, goods, as well as a great market for it to buy everything that it needs, be it from diamonds to gold to, to, to metals to everything else. So Russia is really going on a charm offensive mm-hmm. in Africa. It's also aware of the fact that with, with Western sanctions biting deeper, is going to need more markets, more friends, more import and export uh, partners. But I I think that the thrust for Russia here is really political. It wants to to, to break Western dominance in the world, both economic and political. And Africa is the continent to fight over. And as for um, reaching out to to the population, you mentioned quite rightly that Russia today is now uh, setting up in South Africa. But the the anti-Western propaganda that Russia has been fostering in the African continent didn't start with the war in Ukraine. It's been going on for a long time. And it's, for instance, very strong in Francophone Africa. And the narrative is, is look at the West, look at look at all the horrible things the West has done. Look at what the West did in Iraq, for instance. How can the West now be so hypocritical in defending Ukraine? So th- this is um, this is really part of Russia's strategy. More than the economics, it's it's leading with the political. There are troll factories that have been set up yeah. in Ghana, I believe. Right. Uh, I don't know if there are. And so these troll factories are, you know, places where people come and manufacture information to 
put onto the internet through social networks or distort existing information. And these troll factories are sending information not into the African continent, but also into, into the world at large, be it the US, be it, be it Western Europe. Exactly. When one of the things we actually definitely see that, but one of the points that you make, uh, Samantha, is, is, is absolutely correct. It falls on very fertile ground. Yeah. You know, and I think that's particularly true in Francophone Africa, where the young people, and let's face it, most of West Africa is about 19, 20 years old. And so you're at that radical stage in your life. And and actually, they blame France for everything. I mean, France is still uh, has the uh, common currency, the CFA franc, you know, which is run out of the French Treasury. You've had long-standing French military involvement. Uh, you know, really, that has allowed for this uh, hostile. So, you yeah. know, to to some extent, um, this is a failure of Western policy to actually, as as you said, Karen, to win the hearts and yeah. minds of this continent. Now we see uh, Macron headed out to Cameroon. We've seen Janet Yellen come out from the US. Mm. We've seen Blinken come out hot foot after Lavrov. Wherever Lavrov goes, somebody from the West goes. But it's a little bit Johnny come lately. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really is. I think in terms of Francophone Africa, you also have to add to all of this France's own ambiguous attitude to Russia. Yeah. Because, you know, France, even today, still has a lot of. Very, very senior voices here. Top army command, even in government, senior government officials were saying, well, you know, maybe Russia isn't that bad. At least it's not the United States. And now we're going to become completely controlled by the US. And so because you have even this pro-Russian narrative in France, this course is going to trickle down to, to Africa as well. But um, you're absolutely right, Tara. The West is always one step behind because... The West hasn't understood, I don't think, the importance of Russia's propaganda efforts. And this this started in the Soviet era. You know, there were whole divisions in the KGB which were devoted to information warfare. In Russia's military doctrine, information warfare is one arm of hybrid warfare that is openly acknowledged and that have hundreds and hundreds of people who do just that. Yeah. And it seems that the West is always kind of, yeah, r- running after things that have already happened. I don't know if you've seen this recently, actually, just, you know, when you talk about influence and, and, and you know, the, the, the Russians have been incredible at being able to do this. But just in the past few weeks, we've seen, you know, we've obviously seen disinformation campaigns in recent, in recent years targeting Mali and other parts of the Sahel but you know literally in the past few weeks there's some synthetic the video that's emerged using uh, AI generated avatars uh, possibly the work of, of Wagner operatism we'll talk about Wagner in just a moment but seeking to prop up Burkina Faso's um, illegitimate regime I mean how surprised should we be by this because there seems to be this kind of reaction to the West like Oh my goodness, the Russians are beginning to use technology against us in an incredibly powerful way. With the Russian-Africa summit scheduled for July, are we expected to see similar kind of tactics being used by the West to try and counter the influence? Or are they likely to do it in a much more transparent way, do you think? 
I think that the, the US and Britain are still trying to play the game by the ball. Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, there are PSYOP cells both in the US and in the UK, but to go to the extent of, of manufacturing um, you know, information and manufacturing images... I, I hope we don't go. I, I hope mm. I hope the West doesn't do that because then we'll start behaving like them. Yeah. But regarding Wagner, that there was um, a, 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 an interesting event in in Mali when the French troops left. Uh, they left some cameras running in um, in in one of the areas where where they had been stationed, and these cameras recorded Wagner troops coming in, bringing in dead bodies from somewhere else, yeah. burying them in the French military compound. And then there was this whole scandal about these bodies that had been found. Yeah. So this is this is the, you know, A to Z manufacture of disinformation. And I think we will definitely see more of that as time goes by. And, that, and the West needs to be prepared at least to denounce this, but to denounce this at a state level. But I think um, one of the things that I think Russia, Lavrov and, uh, and the Russians themselves don't, uh, underestimate entirely um, is the the adherence and the uh, the the value that African voters place on democracy. And now, one of the people that Karen and I have had on this podcast in the past is a is the CEO of um, and it just adds into the mix of what we're talking about is the CEO of Afrobarometer, which is one of the most one of the only polling um, organisations, very credible polling organisations that really gets out into rural areas and questions Mm. people and so on. And time and time again, people that have been asked the question prefer um, an inefficient democracy to a a more efficient dictatorship. And uh, so, you know, in a way, a lot of Lavrov and the Russian, the Russian expansionism in Africa is based on what they know about Africa, and that's Africa 30 years ago. Um, and you know, so I have a bit of confidence in that. I have a bit of confidence in the African people themselves to, you know, to say no, say yet. <laughs> But the difficulty is, of course, when you have something like Mali, where you have a military coup, and you've written quite a lot, Sam, and I'd like to talk about this uh, now, about um, about when you get private military companies then uh, supporting undemocratic interventions. And we've seen undemocratic interventions now in three West African countries that have previously and formally had uh, re- relationships with the Soviet Union and Russia, and that's Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea, you know, and the Wagner Group. And we've mentioned the Wagner Group, and and I think we assume that people know what it is, but this is the private military contractor um, that's run by the the guy known as Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, that we've seen really go into areas across the Sahel, also in Mozambique, um, and they've been accused of, of terrible human rights abuses and of effectively paving the way to allow Russia to access vital minerals. Uh, sorry, I mean, to what extent do you see this trend continuing, Samantha? Well, that's a very good question because the question here is, you know, what position is, is Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, um, aiming to, to to secure for himself within Russia? So in, in terms of, of, of the past, Wagner, um, you know, 
was very much seen as a, as a highly efficient private military contractor that was, you know, basically um, uh, helping the Russian state further its political aims, be it in Africa, be it in Syria, and now in Ukraine. But in the last few months, we've seen uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin really taking on uh, certain prerogatives that are really those of a head of state. He's been recruiting in prisons. He's been pardoning prisoners. Now the Russian government has, has now said, well, this is all perfectly legal. There are just some secret decrees that are that, that, that are governing all of this. Uh, what we're also hearing is that the, the Wagner's grip on certain uh, mineral and, and mining concessions in Africa is not going into the Russian government's coffers, but is being used to finance Wagner's own war in Ukraine, Wagner is now in a dispute with the Ministry of Defence over getting access to munitions. So I think that, that for, for now it's certainly going to continue, bearing in mind the fact that, that in terms of its ability to send men and weapons to Africa, Wagner is now very constrained and it is very much concentrated on what is going on in Ukraine. Can I ask you, Samantha, I mean, given the fact that you've, you've, you've talked about sort of Wagner being on the back foot, if you like, because it's having to deploy weapons to Ukraine rather than focusing on here, isn't this an opportunity? If you were Downing Street, if you were Washington, isn't this the opportunity to seriously ramp up efforts in Africa in terms of winning uh, not only the, the the political influence, but also the economic influence. I mean, we've got the Africa-Russian summit scheduled for July. We've got an American summit, a democracy summit, which is being hosted by Zambia in March. I mean, are you getting a sense that behind the scenes there are actually moves to try and seize the ground and oh, seize the opportunity and to really, really ramp up sort of pro-Western narratives um, in a way that may actually have some traction in this part of the world? Because we don't really see it. I, I don't see anything, no. I mean, I do I do hear uh, grumblings in France mm -hmm. in certain sort of quarters saying that we've got to, you know, that France is still reeling really from, from, from withdrawing from Mali. I mean, th th this has been quite a big um, wound that the French are, are dealing with. And um, I do sense, particularly I mean, amongst the intellectual elite, not so much in the government, I don't, I don't have access to those circles, but a sense that we, we're losing the battle for Africa and, and you know, that one has to do something. But, you know, be the UK or be it France, which are the countries which have the biggest presence in Africa, the internal problems of, of both these countries are so great, you know, with, with strikes in both countries, with with issues related to inflation, to, to, to the cost of living, to internal political crisis. You know, the UK is battling with Brexit. France is battling with, with various reforms, like the pension reform, which is not going through, and the war in Ukraine. I just don't think there's a bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that the Russians have their eye on the ball and since the beginning of this uh, conflict and where the West is badly served is is the mapping out of the green energy minerals, which is most of them are going to come from Africa. And, and obviously that, that gives African governments a great deal of power in their hand uh, to, to negotiate both sides. And, and one hopes that the African Union will also be very much a power, you know, at the heart of this debate and, uh, and for the benefit of, their, of its own, own population.
one can hope. One can hope. Well, Sam, thank you very much for giving us the time today and to give share with us your expertise on uh, Russian affairs and African affairs. Well, I'm more of an expert on Russian affairs, but uh, always happy, always happy to help. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, ARC publishes country risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can find out more about these at info at africarisksconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now. <laughs>